Thank you for visiting Crosslink Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. We continue our series this morning on called Essence, and it's really, Kyle nails it when he says it's basically just a return to the fundamental things that we believe, not necessarily done the way you would normally do a Why We Believe series, but it's just... It's the, it's, the, it's the nuts and bolts. It's the very basic things of, of what drives this thing that we call faith and, and who do we believe in and why do we believe in, in him and, and what is it about us that makes us need him so. I was reading this morning. I, in fact, I'm probably going to write a, an article on my blog site about it soon. Uh, a journalist who uh, has found God and you know her version of who God is is so foreign to what I know God to be and uh, it's amazing to me how people approach God but they want to approach God apart from this book and um, that that is the fundamental flaw I think and and when you when you approach God you've got to come at it from his word and she's talking about God and everything she's talking about is basically what she's made up in her own mind in her own conscience and it, it, it ends up resembling nothing of the, the one true God that we serve, uh, that we know as Yahweh. So, um, we know up until now, we've, we've been looking at, at Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished and why he is the person that we serve and worship. I want to take a little different turn now and, and look a little more uh, intently at us. When you look at the New Testament... It isn't just about who Jesus is, but it's also about what he came to do. And he not only present, he's not only presented to us as the one from heaven, um, the Lord from heaven, but also the savior of sinners. You can't separate the two because the validity of his work is uh, dependent heavily on the divinity of his person. And you have to go further than that, you know, really to understand. You can't just stop there. You have to think about who we are uh, as well as who he is Uh, that's the key you know we can talk about jesus all day long but at some point you turn all that uh, attention back to us and you start to consider who we are and what we're about and and why jesus even came to this planet to save us the work of jesus was undertaken basically on behalf of needy persons performed only by the one uh, competent enough to to meet the need the uh, the the competency of jesus lies in his deity and our need lies in our sin and that's where we're going today we've looked at the competence of christ now we need to expose our own sin now you know um, if you're new to us don't be discouraged by the way this sermon is going to go this morning because i'm going to talk an awful lot about sin and i know that that's not a popular thing for preachers to do these days uh we'd a whole lot rather um make it fun and and talk about something like love or or worship or something else and that's great but at some point we've got to stop down and we've got to consider who we are and why jesus even came in the first place and what drives this need that we have for him so um we're going to talk about jesus uh, about sin this morning i don't want you to be discouraged because it has a great ending okay it's got a a wonderful ending but i'm not going to lie to you today i'm going to tell you the truth and and um you're going to see that we are sick and we're in desperate need of medicine. Uh, you know, Kyle said earlier that, that you know, we as humans 
um, we're going to fail. That we, you know, he, I think the way he he put it as a as a probability, I would put it as a certainty that we are going to fail. We're going to fall, and and life's just not going to go good for us sometimes because we we are sinners at our core. Um, but when you get sick, you 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 know you don't just put any medicine in your body. It doesn't do any good for me to take a uh, uh, a, a, an antidepressant if my problem is something related to a uh, you know some virus that I've gotten or some cold or something like that it doesn't you, you have to make sure that you know what's making you sick and you have to uh, understand that on some level before you can then go get the medicine that is necessary to heal you and um, I would say that that's true of us as Christians and as sinners we we've got to know what it is that is our problem we've got to know what what makes us the way we are before we know even how to fix it and so that's you know we've talked about Jesus and we've talked about how perfect and how he's the son of God and how he's God himself we've talked about all that now we we understand why uh, he has come for us and why he is the savior sin is an unpopular subject <clears throat> uh, most people don't want to come to church and have somebody stand up and tell them that they're a sinner in fact, there are some people who believe that sin is just something that preachers make up to make sure that they've still got a job each Sunday. And uh, that, I can tell you that's not the case here. I don't, I don't like really talking about how bad we are and how we sin and how we let God down and let one another down. That's not, that's not fun for anybody. But in order for us to have a healthy understanding of who God is and what a marvelous thing he's done through Jesus... Um, we have to understand what what made it all happen to begin with and what drove uh, God's decision to actually come to earth and that is our own um, sinful nature the fact is is that uh, sin is a fact of human experience you know 200 years ago uh, there, there was a real optimism that flourished in this country and it was widely held that human nature was a fundamentally good thing in fact I one time in a sermon about two years ago made the comment and I've made the comment since then that you are not a good person who occasionally gets it wrong. You are a bad person who occasionally gets it right. I wouldn't just say you. I'd, I mean, I'll lump me into that too. We are not good people who sometimes get it wrong. That's not what we are. We are bad people who sometimes get it right. And I had a, a good friend of mine take uh, issue with that statement a little bit. And they said, Brett, I don't, I, you know, I don't like that statement. I said, well, what don't you like about it? And they said, well, we are good. I said, no, no. <laughs> Uh, anything good in you a a comes from jesus and if you are fundamentally good then my challenge to anybody who would want to say we're we're good is to be good all the time if you're if you're fundamentally good you would be good all the time the problem is that's not who we are the problem is that we we are um sinners and we we do uh have problems make mistakes um you know the the the, the thought in this country 200 years ago was that if you um, could solve the ignorance problem and you could solve a housing problem that, that really sin was the result badness um, evil was caused by ignorance and bad housing that if you uh, gave people the right things and if you uh, would not um, that if you were given the right things you wouldn't do bad things pretty much that's pretty much what, what people thought people believed um, that way 200 years ago and there are people who believe that way today there are people who believe that you know what if you just would meet some fundamental needs um, people will basically get nicer and the world will be a better place uh, the fact is we live in America that we have uh, free education available to everybody welfare is available and yet we still have heinous crimes we have wars we have homelessness we have racial dis uh, discrimination we have oppression in short 
what we know is that at the heart of every man at his core is sinfulness selfishness think about how this assumption of sin shapes our life we have legislation because we basically don't trust each other we have doors on our houses but that's not enough we put locks on those doors because we want to make sure that we keep the wrong people out a promise is really not enough we have to have a contract we don't just shake hands most times we draw up papers and we have people sign those we call them contracts you can pay a fare and that's great but in order for you to get into the concert or in order for you to get on the bus or to get on the airplane you better have a boarding pass or you better have a ticket it's not just enough to show up and say well i paid them over there um so now let me get on board no you you better have something to show for the fact that you paid for the ticket law and order aren't enough we need police to enforce those laws it's an indictment on human nature the bible writers are quite clear sin is universal it's universal as solomon prayed during the dedication of the temple he said there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins psalm 14 says the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt their deeds are vile there is no one who does good the lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand any who seek god all have turned aside they have turned uh, together become corrupt there is no one who does good not even one and then isaiah 53 says we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all it's not just an old testament thing either paul opens romans with the argument that all men jews and gentiles are sinners in the eyes of god he recounts in Uh, the degraded morals of a pagan world and then he turns right around and gets on uh, those who follow God because he says you know they have laws and they don't live up to those either and they they teach the law but they're guilty of breaking it themselves but what is sin I mean really when you think about it what what is sin it's a it can be put in a couple of different uh, ways it's it's a shortcoming it's a it's a shortfall it's not measuring up but there's another uh word there's a greek word that they use for sin in the new testament and that word basically paints the picture of someone who has a bow and an arrow and they put the arrow in the bow and they draw back and they take aim at a target and when they let fly with the arrow that the arrow does not hit the target and that word picture is the word picture that is used to describe sin so when you wake up in the morning and you say you know god today i want i want to glorify you with my life and i want to live my life sinlessly before you that is a great goal that's a wonderful prayer and i encourage you to pray that prayer every day of your life that you would wake up and say god i do not want to let you down today i don't want to sin i want to make good choices and good decisions today but the fact of the matter is that that we are not expert marksmen we miss the target we miss the mark so much of the time and uh, that's really our problem sin is transgression it is lawlessness it is an act that violates justice everyone has a moral code of some kind the jews had the law of moses Uh, the christians have jesus society uh, for society it may be just doing the decent thing you know just doing the right thing and not uh, not crossing somebody and Uh, just keeping with the conventions of society for the buddhist it is the noble eightfold path and for the muslim it is the five pillars that they live by 
Everybody has some kind of moral code that they want to live by, something by which they compare themselves and they say, this is that to which I aspire. I want to be like this. I want, I want my life to be gauged and measured by these things. It comes as no surprise to good living people that their standards and ideals, and for the most part, um, what they believe, they live up to. Uh, you know, people who, who, who don't really think a whole lot about, you know, the measuring stick. What, what do I, you know, what, what measures me? Am I good or not good? A lot of people don't think like that. And um, they don't evaluate. They're not real self-critical. They may know that they have certain character deficiencies, but they're not really alarmed by those uh, things. In short, they consider themselves no worse than any other man. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Our sense of failure depends on how high our standards are. Our sense of failure depends on how high our standards are. If you never raise uh, the, the bar on a high jump, uh, in a high jump event for you, if you never raised it above knee level, you might eventually come to think you're a fantastic high jumper because, you know, I mean, we pretty much all of us could, I would like to think, most of us anyway, could get over a, a bar set at knee level, right? I mean, you could take a run and jump over that and you'd walk away and say, well, man, I'm really good at the high jump until you go to the Olympics and you see how high the bar is for those people who enter that event and then you'd walk away and you'd say, man, I'm not a high jumper at all. So our sense of failure depends on how high our standards are. And God concerns himself with the motive. What is the thought behind the deed? What is the motive behind the action? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, you, you really, you come away with that one idea that, that motive is a large part of what's going on. You know, what, what's happening behind the eyes um, that no one else knows? What's going on in your mind and what's driving your actions uh, you might do some of the most noble-looking things, but what's the reason that you do those things? Jesus had harsh words for people sometimes when they did the right thing but did it with a wrong motive. With these two principles in mind, I want to consider quickly this morning the Ten Commandments. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, just, just enough to go through them and just think about them for just a minute. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Um, this is God's demand for worship exclusivity is what this is. He wants your worship, and he doesn't want to share your worship with your money, with your spouse, with your job, with your business, with your hobbies, with your career. God is a jealous God, and he does not want his worship going to any other thing. And so, you know, we're charged with trying to keep these Ten Commandments. And the reason I'm going through these is I want to show you, uh, as if we really need to be reminded, but I want to show you again how easy it is for us to break these. I mean, can you really look at that list? Money, spouse, family, hobbies, career. Can you think about those things and say to yourself, I've never put any of those before God? I can't. There are times that those things rise up in my life and, and those things take a place that rightfully belongs to God. And the minute I do that, I have sinned. You shall have no other gods before me. It isn't wrong to have any of those things. But they become wrong when we place those things in our lives in a place that should be occupied by God. Number two, um, well, I would just say this first. Sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. It is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. Matthew 22 says this, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. To, to not put him first in word, thought, deed, business, leisure, friendship, career to 
uh, in the use of our money and the use of our time and our talents, our work or at home is to sin and we are all guilty of that at one time or another to not put him first in everything and if you could go through your life and say God I put you first in everything then you would be able to say I was sinless but the fact of the matter is at some point in our life probably today we're going to put something in God's place and it's going to take priority and we will then become a sinner Jesus is the only one who's ever done this perfectly Number two, you shall not make for yourselves a graven image. In the first commandment, God demands our exclusive worship. In the second, he demands our sincere and spiritual worship. You don't have to have made a golden calf to break this commandment. You may have attended church today, but have you really worshiped today? You may have prayed at some point today, but have you really spoken to God and heard from God? You may have read your Bible, but have you really let God speak to you? Approaching God with our lips when our hearts are far away from him is no good, and when we do that, we sin. Third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to keep God's name hallowed. Whenever our behavior is inconsistent with our belief or when our practice contradicts our preaching, we take God's name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Setting aside a day to rest and meditate on God our minds need rest. Our minds, our bodies need uh, a time where we pull away and we stop down. And that's really hard for us in this culture. Our spirits need the opportunity to rest. Our spirits need the opportunity to worship. And the Sabbath exists for these two things. Number five, honor your father and mother. It is our duty to God to honor our parents. In fact, I would say that they stand, especially when we are young, as God's authority in our lives. Number six, you shall not kill. This isn't a, just a prohibition on murder. I've been killed with a look, haven't you? You've probably been hurt by someone who's used careless words in your direction. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Just as entertaining murderous thoughts is equivalent, Jesus says, to murder, to entertain adulterous thoughts or lustful thoughts is to commit adultery and yet that's something that that uh, people struggle with men and women number eight you shall not steal this goes beyond stealing money it could be that you're stealing cable it could be that you you know you cheat the irs it could be that uh that you work short hours it could be that you don't you know it could be that you go to work and you say i'm going to work a full day and you're there for eight hours or you're there for 12 or however long you're supposed to be there but you're really not given everything that you could give to your employer paul wasn't satisfied that a thief should just stop stealing he also expected him to start working and not was he just to work to provide for himself and his family he was to work until he could provide for someone else who was needy it wasn't just that paul wanted the thief to stop th- uh, stealing he wanted him to become a productive member of society. He wanted him to become a, a, a person who was able then to take care of someone else who might be tempted to steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The last five commandments express somewhat the respect for the rights of others. True love demands and expects this. This commandment isn't just talking about the court of law, but about every form of slander, lies, exaggerations, distortions, and idle talk. It's also about listening 
to unkind rumors. You ever get caught sometimes listening to things that you think, yeah, I shouldn't be. I mean, if the person knew that this was being said, I shouldn't be listening to this. And yet there's something in us that when we hear something like that, our, we lean in, don't we? We, we want to hear the, the bad stuff. It's amazing to me, you know, our, our need to know what's going on with Brittany. You know, is she going to get to keep the boys or not? Or, or you know, what's going on with, with uh, Angelina Jolie? Or what's going on with it? You name the star, and, and we want to know. We want to hear. And if something bad happens, we really want to know. I mean, we really lean in. It's about making jokes at somebody else's expense. It's about, um, you know, having a laugh at, at someone maybe that they don't even know. And I, when I was a youth pastor, one of the uh, kind of unwritten, I had some certain kind of core values that I operated under as a youth pastor, things that I wanted to happen in our youth group. And one of the things that I had was high on my list of things is I did not ever, ever want a kid in our youth group to feel like they had been made fun of or laughed at. Now, if, if the kids wanted to make, you know, if we laughed in youth group, generally we laughed at my expense. And that was okay. That was fine. Um, but I didn't want kids to be laughed at. I wanted to make sure that they didn't feel like they'd been uh, trampled in any way. And so, uh, you know, I've always wanted to step in the way of that and, hey, let's, you know, let's have fun at my expense. Let's, let's make fun of the fact that Brett's not real organized or Brett doesn't remember good or, you know, Brett's not coordinated or whatever it is. But I didn't want that to happen with kids. Number 10, you shall not covet. This in some ways is the most revealing, really. I mean, this, this last commandment kind of puts a spin on the other ones. And I want to see if I can explain that to you. It takes the Ten Commandments from an outward thing to an inward thing. This idea of coveting. See, when, if, when you covet, no one knows that you covet. We, we were in, every Thursday, the staff and I have lunch together and um, I forget what the subject was, but we, someone said something about me coveting something. I, we're talking about a computer or something, and, and um, I think it was Tracy said, Brett, did you just covet? I said, no, I don't want his. I just want one just like it. You know, we, 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 we play these games, don't we? But in our minds, there, there are things that are going on that no one else knows. And, and we can covet, and, and nobody can even tell. Covetousness begins in the inner life, and it lurks in the heart and in the mind. We can covet and nobody knows it. Paul called covetousness, covetousness idolatry in Colossians. And then 1 Timothy 6. But godliness, he said later, he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So much goes on under the surface in our lives. We uh, want to uh, think things that nobody else ever knows. But God knows. He sees into the depths of our heart. He sees us as we really are. His law shows us our sins the way they really are. That's what the law is supposed to do. The law is supposed to expose our sin. We, we took a tour of a college with Bennett on Tuesday. And we were getting ready to walk into a cer certain part of the, the campus. And the lady told us not to do something. And that was the first time I'd ever even considered that that might be done. And then after she'd said, don't do it, I'm, the whole time we're on the tour and we're in that part of the, the facility, I'm thinking, well, I want to do that. <laughs> it's the law. That, the Bible says the law leads us to sin. The law, the law exposes us. The law, you know, 
I, I guarantee you, if you, I'm, I'm going to give the credit for this illustration to my senior uh, Bible professor in college. He said, if you took a plate of peas or green beans and you put it in front of a four-year-old kid and you walked out of the room and you left him alone for a half an hour, he may eat the peas, he may throw them against the wall, he may you know, shoot them like marbles, may do a lot of things. He's probably not going to stick them up his nose. But if you put the peas in front of him and then make the statement, now don't stick the peas up your nose and you leave for half an hour, you're going to come back and the kid's going to have peas up his nose because the law leads us to sin. The law exposes us, right? You see that? We're sinful and the law just points it out to us. At this point, we'd probably just like to leave the whole nasty subject of sin. We'd like to forget that we can't keep the law. We'd like to keep our sinfulness a big secret, but we can't. We have to understand the result of our sin. It's not just enough to know that we are sinners. It's not just enough to know that we're bad people that occasionally get it right. It's not enough to know that. We've got to know what to do with it before we can truly appreciate what God has done. We have to come to this place where we understand our need before him the biggest i want to give you three results of sin three three things that uh, are the result of sin the biggest and and uh, you know this is uh, the title of the sermon this morning is the scariest thought in the world and the scariest thought in the world is this the biggest result of sin is that it cuts us off from god the person who has sin in their life and we all have that okay that's all of us in the room and, and there's no, you know, forget the whole thing about varying degrees and who's more of a sinner than another. You know, Kyle's fond of saying oftentimes the, the, the ground is level at the cross, and that's exactly true. We are sinners, all of us. And, and the, the scary part is that if that sin is not dealt with, if we don't recognize that what happened on the cross forgives us of our sin and we give ourselves to that and we claim that and we we acknowledge god yes you've died for me and i i place my faith in that if we do not do that and our sin is left uh, unforgiven then what that means for us for an eternity is that we would spend an eternity apart from god i remember having this conversation when i was in bible college senior in bible college a really good friend of mine named mert belding doesn't that sound like a great he was from savannah georgia loved mert we had some great philosophical talks and one time he he we got to talking about sin he said you know we talk a lot about hell and we talk a lot about how scary that would be and the devil and all that kind of stuff he said just the idea that i could spend an eternity apart from god's presence scares me to death and that's true but that is you know i'm not trying to scare anybody i'm not trying to you know, scare you into some decision for Christ, but I want to lay this out for you as clearly as I know how. If you do not recognize your sin problem in your life, and we all have one, and you don't confess it to God, and you don't receive the forgiveness that was purchased for you on the cross, and if cross, and if the, the blood of Jesus does not cover your life and your sins, then the reality for you is that when you die, you will spend an eternity apart from God that thought that single one thought should scare you to death and should prompt you to do something about it man's highest destiny is to know God to be in a personal relationship with him we were made in his image 
And so knowing him is a possibility. But though our destiny is to know God, we must not forget that he's holy. He is an all-consuming fire. He is dangerous. All those men in the Bible who caught a glimpse of God shrunk back from him. There's several guys in Scripture that, that got a glimpse of God, and every single one of them, when they, when they get that glimpse, they can't handle it. Moses hid his face, afraid to look at God. Job cried out, My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When Isaiah encountered God, he saw God high and lifted up on a throne, and the angels were singing, and, and he, he saw this magnificent vision, and it prompted him to say, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Ezekiel fell on his face. Saul, who would become Paul in the New Testament, was struck to the ground and became blind. John, in his vision, when he saw God, he said, I was as one who was dead. There's a great chasm that yawns between man and God because of our sin. Paul asked what partnership there was between holiness and sin, or what fellowship did light have with darkness? That sin cuts us off from God has never been more fully illustrated than in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The tabernacle was made in two compartments. The first and larger part was called the holy place. And then inside that, uh, it, was, it was further inside and smaller was something known as the most holy place or sometimes referred to as the holy of holies. And in this inner place resided the Shekinah glory of God. It represented the place where God lived and dwelt, the visible symbol of God's presence. Between those two places, there was a, there was a big, thick, heavy veil, a, a curtain that barred access into the holy of holies. No one was allowed to pass through into the Holy of Holies except the great high priest, the high priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement where he went in and he made atonement for the sins of all the people. He did it one time a year. And he brought a blood sacrifice when he did it. Now, this, this isn't confirmed by Scripture, but tradition says we know that, that the priests wore a bell. And they're not really sure why they wore a bell, but they're pretty sure that the idea behind that was they wanted to make sure that he was moving, that when he went into the presence of God for that brief period of time, that the presence of God didn't kill him. So they would listen for the bell to ring. That's the tradition. That's the, the thought behind it. And I can't confirm this, but uh, it's been told to me that they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle, the high priest's ankle. And if that bell stopped ringing, they would just pull on the cord because no one was going in to get him because they were afraid they would die. And so, you know, this idea of seeing God, this holy, sinless, perfect, Shekinah glory God um, was just a scary thing. What the tabernacle taught was this. Sin brings inevitable separation from God, and this separation is death. Now, I hate to go here, but I have to. Hell is a grim reality. Jesus talked about hell. It's not like, you know, this is some made-up thing that... Again, it's not something that preachers make up to get you to keep coming back to church. That's not what hell is. Hell is a real place. And it is an infinite separation from God. This separation is devastating. And until we are forgiven, until, listen now, until we are forgiven, that is our destiny. Separated 
from God. You think your life is bad now. You think you're going through some things right now that are difficult, and maybe you don't like life all that much. And maybe you think, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I don't know what your views are on, on life, and I don't know what your views are necessarily on your life, but this is what I would tell you. However bad it is now, it's at least bad in the presence of God. I mean, you have the presence of God here. Imagine life with no presence of God. I, I don't even want to think about that. Sin doesn't just separate us from God. It also, number two, it enslaves us. It brings us into captivity. The sins we commit outwardly are symptomatic of a deeper problem. We have a disease. We have a, a sin disease. The metaphor that Jesus used was uh, that of a tree and its fruit, and he talked about the quality of the tree uh, determining the fruit. He went on to say in, in Mark, for, whom, uh, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawlessness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Often in the New Testament, we are referred to as slaves Jesus ticked the Pharisees off when he used terminology like that in, cha in John chapter 8 to the Jews who had believed in him Jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free this made the Pharisees mad and they replied uh, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone how can you say that we shall be set free which caused Jesus to say, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So sin cuts us off from God, and sin enslaves us. And then finally, sin brings about conflict with others. If you've got a problem with somebody, probably sin is at the root of that problem somehow, some way. If there's a relationship flaw that you have with somebody else, there's a chance that sin is involved in that relationship flaw one way or another. Sin affects our relationships. It infects our nature. It is the, at the root of our personality, and it controls our ego. All the sins we commit are either assertions against God or they are transgressions against somebody else. Every time we, we, we sin, we, every time we do something that God would say, well, that, that is sin, then we have either transgressed against God or we have transgressed against one of God's people. Jesus gives us a summary of the law when he combines a verse from Leviticus with a verse from Deuteronomy. Matthew chapter 22, it says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. God's order is that we put him first. That we put other people second. And that we see ourselves last. The way we've come to say that in the church is, I am third. I've seen t-shirts, I've seen bracelets and, and even necklaces with the number three on it. I have a good friend who had a youth ministry. He called it third string youth ministry. And the whole point behind it was we're going to put God first, we're going to put other people second, and then we will come last. I am third. That'd be a great way to start your day. Wake up every day and say, you know what? I'm third today. I, I, come, I come after God. I come after the people that are around me. I come last. 
We tend to reverse that. We tend to put ourselves first and our neighbors second, and then God hangs out somewhere in the background most of the time. This is where much of our conflict comes from, I think, is that we think of ourselves first. You don't have to look any further than a birthday party to understand that. You know what happens at a birthday party? They bring out the cake. And they bring out the cake, and they bring out the ice cream, and the kids start screaming. And what are, what are the kind of things that kids say when they bring out cake and ice cream? Me first. Me first. Or you'll hear somebody say, I want the flour on the cake. Well, that goes to the birthday boy. or that goes. Well, then I want some of the trim. I want a corner piece. I want some of the writing. I want, that. I want the name. That's what I want. And, and we, you know, we start calling dibs on things. And you know what? It doesn't have to be kids. I've seen grown people uh, call for the rose on the cake. Okay, so we're not going to blame this on a four-year-old. Again, at our nature, at our core, that's who we are. So many conflicts would be avoided, I think, if we just examined ourselves critically and we looked at other people charitably. But what we do instead is we look at ourselves charitably and we look at everybody else critically. And when we do that, we set ourselves up to sin. Sin is possessive. Love is expansive. Sin desires to get. And love desires to give. Now, I've talked about our sin this morning for one purpose. It is to convince us of our need for Jesus and to prepare us for an understanding and acceptance of what he offers. In Matthew, it says, uh, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Only when we realize we are sick are we really prepared to pursue a cure. Now, the great news this morning is that if you have, have ever publicly professed your, your faith in Christ, then God has extended to you an offer, and that offer is an offer of forgiveness for your sins. Not just the sins you've committed, but the sins you'll commit today and the sins that you'll commit in the future. The Bible talks about a once-for-all propitiation for all sin. In other words, a once-for-all offering for all sin, which is a beautiful thing. And I use this illustration whenever I talk to people about coming to Christ, and I've used it here, I'll use it now. Forgiveness is a gift. I would, I would put it a different way. Forgiveness is a present. And we're coming up on Christmas time, and it's possible, it's, I don't know how probable it is in your world, but it's possible that you'll present a present to someone. We call it a present. That you'll present a gift to someone, and they'll say, oh, I can't, I can't take that. I don't know if you've ever extended a present to someone that wasn't received. See, if this is a gift and I'm going to give it to you, I present it to you. It is not a gift until you do what? It's not a gift until you receive it, until you take it. What happened on the cross is that Jesus purchased a gift for you. He purchased the gift of forgiveness. And he presents it to you. And he presents it to you every day of your life. And every Sunday we come in here and I remind those of you who've never received that gift, I remind you, Jesus is presenting a gift to you. Would you take it today? Would you make it something other than a present? Would you make it a gift? See, the beautiful thing is for those of us who have said, yes, I'll receive that gift, we don't ever have to worry about being separated from God ever again. Our sin may break our hearts. 
Our sin may cause us to carry our heads low into prayer sometimes. We may think we're lower than a snake's belly. That's part of the whole condition of sin. But one thing we know, we are not, nor will we ever be, separated from God's presence. But if you have never professed Christ, and you have never said, I want to receive that gift. I mean, I don't take great joy in saying this next sentence to you. But if you don't ever receive that gift, here's what you have to look forward to for an eternity if you never receive the gift, separation eternally from God. I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, that thought should scare you to death. And if that's what it takes to get you to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus, I believe that the death on the cross, that he died for me, saves me, If that thought is what moves you to finally come to faith, then I'll use that thought. You need to give your life to Christ because the alternative is you will spend an eternity far from God's presence. Forget hell. Forget Satan. Forget a devil. Forget anything like that. Removal from God's presence eternally. It's the scariest thought in the world. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way. Receive the gift receive the gift we're going to stand and sing in just a moment if you have never looked God in the face as much as that can be done with us as humans because if we actually really did that we'd die but if you've never stood up and said I believe that Jesus died for me I believe that that death forgives me of every sin I have ever committed I get the gift of righteousness which means I have a right standing with God it's justification just as if I'd never sinned if you've never done that, if you've never experienced that, you can do that this morning in this place. If you think, well, I want to talk to somebody. I need to know more. Come find me and talk to me or talk to anybody in here that's a Christian. They ought to be able to tell you this. But don't go another day without dealing with this sin issue in your life. God has gone to great lengths to solve our sin problem and for those of us who are Christians the problem is solved the beautiful thing is we can talk about sin and it may make us sad but we walk through those doors forgiven for an eternity not so for the one who's never received the gift you can change that this morning when we stand and sing let's pray before we do that Father I I guess we should just start by apologizing to you. you you created this beautiful place called Eden and you put man in there you gave him a helper there there were plants and animals and the word that we use to describe that place is paradise and father you gave us one thing that really demonstrates more than anything how much you think about us and how much you love us you gave us free will You gave us the ability to choose whether or not we would love you and serve you and obey you. And we took that gift and we used it and we decided that we would sin. And and every human that has lived since Adam has had this problem of sin in their being. And you knew it was a sin problem and it was our problem and we created the problem but you didn't leave us to our own devices to solve the problem. You solved the problem and you sent Jesus. So no more do we have to talk about being separated from you. No more do we have to to slink into some relationship with you. We can come into the throne room. We can hold our head high because we have been forgiven. 
And it's not because we've done anything great. It's not because we've done anything at all other than receive a gift that you extended to us, the gift of forgiveness. Father, if there's someone in the room this morning who has never done that, I pray that you would so move them this morning that they would be willing to profess their faith in you, your work on the cross, that they would be redeemed and brought back to you. you they belong to you, but they've wandered off. They're, they're sinners. They need you. So this morning, Father, all of us in this room, we stand in recognition of the fact that we fall so short so much of the time. We must disappoint you greatly. But the real solace that we have is that in that we, we might disgrace you, your love is much bigger than any disappointment you might feel. And you love us. We thank you for that. Father, we just glorify you. We, we give you praise that you're bigger than us, that, you're, that you're, you, you, don't, you don't get defeated the way we get defeated. You overcame sin, you overcame death. And we're just left speechless. And all we can really say is thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.